Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy. Welcome to another episode of The Fellow on Call, the Hemong podcast. We're coming at you from Rulo University Medical Center. I'm Ronak. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. And in today's episode, we add on to our heme consult series, this time talking about when anticoagulation fails. This is something that you're going to definitely encounter in internal medicine and definitely as a hematologist oncologist. It can be actually very simple. And what I'm excited for is Dan the Man going through his approach to when anticoagulation fails. And apologies to advance to any uh, residents uh, listening to this from Rouleau University. You probably heard me give this talk as a lecturer last year, but I think it's important, so I'm glad we're covering it today. Yeah, absolutely. And it does come up as a consult all the time. I can certainly attest being on consults recently. So, all right, guys. Well, without further ado, let's roll that show. All right, guys. How are we doing today? Not bad. Not bad. Dan, I not to put you on the spot, but your wedding is coming up. So how are things going, preparations for that? I Our listeners may recall that both Vivek and I had our independent weddings the same weekend a few, almost well over a year ago at this point. So we remember the uh, when I was coming down to the wire, how hectic things got. You seem to be holding up pretty well. Yeah, you know, I think it's uh, it's interesting, or at least it's been a process. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that I never would have thought of thinking about, like tablecloth color and napkin color and chair upgrades. But you know, we have our final meetings coming up with all the various vendors we're using for this next week or two. And uh, it's going to be good to, to finally have all the planning behind us and just get to the big party. Well, I'm very much looking forward to seeing the fruits of your labor. So keep up the great work. We're looking forward to a great party. Guys, so, you know, in today's discussion, we have really important talk planned on talking about when anticoagulation fails. And, you know, as anybody listening to this that's familiar with hematology may know, this comes up all the time. We unfortunately have patients that we put on blood thinners that for some reason still develop clots despite being on blood thinners. And so this is not an uncommon question to the hematology consult service. So I'm glad we're now going to give our listeners the tools to be able to answer these questions like a pro. Yeah, Ronick, do you want to start us off with a case that you saw on consults recently? Yeah, absolutely. So I had seen a case of a patient, a 52-year-old woman with type 2 diabetes, hyperlipidemia, and hypertension. She had prior lower extremity cellulitis twice, unfortunately, and a prior right lower extremity DVT. So she was currently prescribed indefinite anticoagulation and was put on the DOAC rivaroxaban. This patient reaches out to her primary care doctor because she was concerned about recurrent cellulitis, reporting a red and tender right lower extremity and a low-grade fever. So she gets brought into clinic by her PCP, and her whole right lower extremity is red and swollen, and her provider orders an ultrasound, which shows an extensive DVT in the right lower extremity. So again, the same side as her prior clot that had occurred some years back. So the PCP then sends the patient to the emergency room and sends a message to the hematology team asking for some guidance on this. So, you know, clearly this is a patient that sounds like she had an unprovoked DVT in the past in the right lower extremity was recommended as per our guidelines to be on indefinite anticoagulation and she's on a DOAC rivaroxaban. You know, the patient expressed to us that she was pretty diligent with taking her medication and despite that though, developed a new clot in the same leg. So guys, where do we go from here? 
Well, for me, whenever I get a consult concerning DOAC failure uh, or breakthrough clotting on a DOAC, my first thought is prove it. I really am reluctant to just take at face value any report of a DOAC not working because these drugs are pretty good. They usually do a fine job protecting people from recurrent events. The first thing I want to know is whether or not there is blood thinner in that patient's bloodstream at that moment when they present with this new clot. If you run a test and it shows that there's undetectable level of blood thinner in their in their bloodstream, regardless of their reported adherence history when you're interviewing them, you know something went wrong with taking the drug. And it's hard for us to pin that on the medication. If it's not in their bloodstream, it can't be protecting them, right? And the test that we run for this, it has a variety of names depending on what your specific lab orders look like, but they're essentially all the same test. It's what's called an anti-10A level. That's a medication level that looks at the activity of any 10A interfering substance in the bloodstream. So it works to measure low molecular weight heparin, unfractionated heparin, apixaban, rivaroxaban, any of these drugs. It's all the same test, just calibrated to different standard curves. All we're looking for here is a binary yes or no on whether or not there's a drug present. So it doesn't really matter how that test is normalized. So we can actually order just like a low molecular weight heparin level for these patients on a DOAC, and if it's detectable in the bloodstream, okay, we know the drug is there. It's important to, to point out here that you can't really use this with dabigatran since that's a thrombin inhibitor, and your lab may have a specific dabigatran level, or you can talk with them about whether or not the thrombin time is sensitive to dabigatran use. That does have to be measured a little separately. In fact, from this test, like all we can get is a yes-no. The DOAC drugs weren't studied with a specific therapeutic range in mind, so you can't say if a patient's drug level is therapeutic when you're doing this test. You're really just looking to see if it's there at all. Beyond just checking to see if that drug's present in the bloodstream, and I always say that we should do that first because oftentimes what happens is these patients come in and before we're even called, they get a dose of an oxaparin or something that's going to mess up the, that test, mess up the meaning of that test. So really try and get that sent off right away. You also just have to talk with the patient, really dive into their adherence history. Even if that anti-10A level comes back with detectable drug in their bloodstream, it's possible that there was an issue with adherence in the past when, when the clot formed. And because these DOAC medications are reversible, the medication really only does its job when it's in the bloodstream. Vivek, do you want to talk a little bit about what your adherence history looks like and, and how you talk with patients when you're trying to figure out what happened? Yeah, I think this is super important. And when I take this adherence history, what I'm really asking them is not only did you not take it at all, but did you miss any doses? I check their medication refill habits and see, was there any irregularity in, in the frequency at which they refill their medications? And, and honestly, when I have to take medicines, it's not like I'm incredibly adherent. It's actually very difficult. So this is not an uncommon thing to happen. And I ask them things like, how are your medications organized? You know, do they have confusion about their medicines? Polypharmacy is a big deal for patients who have thrombosis and are on these anticoagulant medications. The other thing that I always ask these patients is history of things like bypass surgeries or if there's any reason I believe that there is something that are influencing absorption. So bypass surgery is one. We don't really know definitively how all of these DOACs are absorbed. There are theories and studies about saying this, but in general, we can't monitor the levels, so we're still left with that question mark, especially if they fail the DOAC. The other thing is for things like rivaroxaban, also known as Xarelto, we don't endorse any products, but it's important to know that because you'll hear Xarelto very commonly. 
that one really should be taken with food. And if this patient has been taking multiple doses and things like that, and they're not taking it with food, then it's not optimally being absorbed. So that could be a reason why that patient is subtherapeutic and had a breakthrough thrombosis. And really through all of this is if you do discover an inherent problem, it's really important to associate that well with the onset of symptoms. And it's also important to understand the root cause of the adherence issue, whether it's side effects, things like expense. That's another big thing, right? These drugs are expensive. And really by understanding that you can fix the problem. One of the things that really is important when you're asking the patients about these DOACs is also, if you're thinking about an alternative anticoagulation, if they say, I will not take that alternative one, you got to, something is better than nothing in many cases. And that's another tricky conversation that we can get to a little bit later in this episode. And you know, I'm glad you mentioned the issue about taking rubroxaban with food, because it's also just important to counsel your patients on what that means. You know, if they're taking this pill with a couple of saltines, that's really not going to cut it. Uh, at therapeutic doses, rubroxaban needs some fat to get absorbed optimally. So, you know, it's unfortunately just take with food is like the label that gets put on the pill bottle. But what does that really mean? And, and making sure that a patient understands that is important. That, quite frankly, I didn't realize the fat components. That's great to know and certainly going to be something that I'm going to be more cognizant about counseling my patients about. So guys, in, in our case, we did end up sending an anti-10A level, and the medication was indeed in her bloodstream based on the levels. And so we reviewed a detailed adherence history, um, and she couldn't really identify any lapses in medication adherence. So, you know, again, the drug is in her system. She is saying that she's taking it and doesn't have any barriers to taking the medication. So now what? The next thing I'm going to look for if I don't have concerns about adherence and if, I, if the drug is in their bloodstream, is there some anatomic reason why a clot formed again at this location? Even the best blood thinners can't overcome really severe anatomic problems like severe extrinsic compression of a vessel because of a benign tumor pushing up against it or you know, worse yet, a malignant tumor invading into a vessel. The body's really not at fault there. It's doing what it's supposed to do. It's clotting in a situation where the blood flow is so severely impaired that it's essentially stagnant. The best way to do this is, is with you know cross-sectional imaging, if such imaging is available. Oftentimes, if you just have an ultrasound, it may not be able to, to identify some source of compression. So just doing a careful physical exam, the extremity that's involved, if it's an extremity clot, or again, looking at that cross-sectional imaging, if available, of deeper locations to see if there's any extrinsic compression or anything that looks like a tumor growing around a vessel that might be causing this. You know, if there is some clear anatomic cause, like you do identify one of these things, I usually continue the same anticoagulant and discuss with the interventional services, uh, either IR or surgery, to see if there's any way to correct that anatomic obstruction that seems to be a trigger for thrombosis. I generally think that the blood thinner is probably still doing some good, even if it wasn't able to prevent rethrombosis at that site. It's probably preventing some proximal extension of the thrombus, certainly preventing thrombosis elsewhere. Uh, again, this isn't the blood thinner's fault. The body is just really aggressively trying to clot at these areas of anatomic obstruction. And that really gets into if you have a malignant tumor thrombosis, it's always very reasonable to start that patient on anticoagulation, regardless if it's bland thrombus or from the tumor. If you have that compression of the vessel, this anatomic abnormality, that you have to start treatment to fix it. But ultimately, you don't want to have progression of that thrombosis or have more distal thrombus related to that area of compression. So fortunately, this patient had no such anatomic problem. After careful examination of the extremity 
and of a recent CT scan that she had for an unrelated issue. So Ronak, what are you going to do now? And this was a point of discussion that I had with the attending because I, you know, we really needed to come up with a plan for this patient because now we're sort of venturing into that territory of DOAC failure. And, you know, this is a little bit cumbersome because as we all know, anyone that's familiar with the DOACs agrees that they're so much more convenient and they're easier to manage for patients. But, you know, again, based on our history, our investigations, it does not seem that the DOAC really seems to be working for our patients. So unless the patient has a clear reason why a specific DOAC was not doing the trick for them, such as severe side effects, leading to non-adherence or cost issues, as we had mentioned, we typically don't switch DOAC medications if the patient has had a, a breakthrough event. And again, as we referenced before, you can check these tests, but they're not going to tell us whether or not somebody is truly therapeutic or subtherapeutic. They're not made to be used in that way. So in this case, we have to establish that these patients likely are having breakthrough clots because they're pro-thrombotic and they require something that's maybe a little bit more powerful, if you want to use that term in, in air quotes, but a little bit more powerful than your run-of-the-mill DOAC or something that's able to be more monitored. And this is where we start reaching for things like warfarin or anoxaparin. So, you know, now we say that, okay, the DOAC is not as quote-unquote powerful as warfarin or anoxaparin, and I want Dan to break that down a little bit further in here just a second. But I just want to reiterate, when you get that anti-10A level, it's a binary. Is it in the system or not? Not a therapeutic level. The adherence is critically important. But now we have this patient where the drug was in the system and they still had a breakthrough clot. So Dan, why are these other agents more powerful? Well, in the case of warfarin, there's some thought that this medication kind of working on a larger range of clotting factors might make it a little stronger than the DOACs, which basically just target activated factor 10 or activated factor 2 in the case of dabigatran, where you know warfarin, of course, targets four pro-thrombotic clotting factors, famously. I do also think, though, that the, the consistency of factor suppression is, is really important with warfarin. It may sound strange hearing the word consistency associated with warfarin therapy if you ever had a look at a patient's INRs kind of bouncing around all the time. But what I mean is DOACs, like I said, only work for the time that they're circulating in the bloodstream. It's a reversible inhibition on these activated clotting factors, where warfarin works by suppressing clotting factor production. So in that way, the blood thinning effect is more durable, and it doesn't experience these daily fluctuations as a patient's blood level drifts up and down between doses. Another advantage to these to warfarin or vitamin K antagonists is monitorability. And so I often tell patients that it's kind of a double-edged sword with the DOAC medications. On one hand, we don't have to monitor drug levels, but on, on the other, we can't monitor drug levels. And with warfarin, we'll know for sure whether or not a patient's dose is getting them therapeutically anticoagulated by measuring their INR. Finally, and, and this doesn't relate to anticoagulant failure per se, but another reason why warfarin might be preferred is uh, because it's immediately and fully reversible. We can always give prothrombin complex concentrates or FFP or some other factor replacement to replace those missing clotting factors and give vitamin K to help their body synthesize more. I like the way how you frame this as a reversibility idea that you need the drug in the system for these DOACs to have this suppression and anticoagulant activity. And it's important for everybody to know that the mechanism of onset of these drugs is very fast, one to two hours. So if that patient's like, hey, man, I took that pill an hour ago, you know, when they come to the hospital, that test is very, very sensitive, right? That anti-10A activity level is very, very sensitive. 
But outside of that reversibility, what are the current indications for going with warfarin as opposed to doing a DOAC? Well, there are a few settings when we still prefer these vitamin K antagonist drugs. The antiphospholipid antibody syndrome with arterial manifestations, something like a heart attack or a stroke related to antiphospholipid syndrome, or so-called high-risk antiphospholipid syndrome, such as a triple positive disease. We'll talk about that a bunch later in a separate episode about antiphospholipid syndrome, but there are certain really high-risk versions of that disease that can cause a lot of clotting. Warfarin is generally thought of as superior in that setting. Similarly, left ventricular thrombus, or LV thrombus, that's currently considered an indication for warfarin, although we're starting to get some data showing that DOAC medications are probably just as good, so kind of stay tuned, watch this space for developments there. And then mechanical heart valves and LVADs, left ventricular assist devices, those are also considered high-level indications for, for warfarin therapy. That makes a lot of sense. You know, I get that warfarin may have an edge on DOAC in certain settings, but what about heparin and its related medications like anoxaparin and fondaparinux? Those are single-factor drugs too, right? So how are they better than the DOACs? So Vivek, that's, that's a great question. And remember that heparin and drugs in that class work through irreversible inhibition of activated factor 10, and sometimes too, via an enzymatic digestion with antithrombin 3. And so this makes the drugs have a more stable and long-lasting effect in the patient's bloodstream than the DOACs do, because remember, as Dan pointed out, the DOACs have a reversible inhibition. And the other benefit of these drugs is that we can also measure levels with them, similar to the way that we can measure levels in warfarin to make sure that our patients are in the appropriate dose. That makes a lot of sense. You know, again, we get back to this idea of reversibility versus irreversibility. And when we have these DOACs, yeah, fast mechanism of onset, really convenient. The missed doses really matter for these medications, right? You don't have a consistent steady state level of drug in your system that you might have, especially with something like a warfarin. And you also can get with things like anoxaparin, that Lovenox shot that you get that these patients administer. Let's go back to the case again. Our patient is started on a heparin infusion and transitioned to warfarin with an INR goal of two to three for her new right lower extremity DVT. She finds the INR check super annoying at first, but she gets to a stable dose after a few weeks and is eventually prescribed a home INR monitoring machine, which she likes as it is similar to her glucometer that she's been using for a while. She hasn't had any recurrent clots since making the switch, and she's doing really well now several years later. I think this is a really good case to really talk about DOAC failure, and I think we'll stop this episode now and then move on to our next episode where we talk about things like warfarin failure and things like the anoxaparin failure. But just to recap, I want to highlight a few things. When you have a patient coming in with concern for a new clot on a direct oral anticoagulant, the first thing that you should ask yourself is prove it. Prove that they actually failed this direct oral anticoagulant prove that this is actually a new clot. Those are two extremely important things. Review imaging, review timing. When you're doing that medication adherence assessment, really know that are they inconsistently taking it. For rivaroxaban or Xarelto, are they eating fatty foods with that? Those are critically important. The other thing is right when they hit the door, get that anti-10A level. These medications have an action of onset of one to two hours. You will find it. It's a binary, yes or no. It's not therapeutic drug level monitoring, but you'll find it if it's there. After that, you need to make sure that 
these patients don't have malabsorptive issues, whether that's a bypass surgery, celiac disease, things like that where they're not absorbing the drug, you can't monitor it like you do with warfarin. No matter how many pharmacodynamic studies you do, you cannot monitor the levels like warfarin. And we see all the time how labile that warfarin level is. I wonder how labile these DOAC levels are, right? We just don't have the capability right now of measuring those things. So Dan, after we do that first assessment, can you wrap up how to next manage the patient? I do want to just reiterate at this point, you know, one of my clinical mentors here at Rouleau always used to say, in hematology, the devil is always in the details. And that really applies here. That history is going to be your biggest tool in disproving true DOAC failure. But you know, once you've seen that the med is there, make sure you rule out any anatomic obstruction that's making this problem worse. And once you've ruled that out, you get sort of, you're really convinced yourself this person really truly did have a breakthrough event on this DOAC medication. The next move is to switch to something else. In this case, it's warfarin or an injectable. And it's going to be sort of patient specific, which is going to be best for which patient. Um, most of your patients are going to want something oral long term. And so warfarin is usually where I end up. And the advantages there are just monitorability, durability of the, of the anticoagulant effect, and in the case of injectables, a more powerful inhibition. Yeah, hopefully it's a situation that you don't end up facing because usually you're able to find something in there to convince yourself that the medication, DOAC medication, did not truly fail. But if you do, know that you do have these other tools in your armamentarium. Well, that was great, guys. Again, this is a very common scenario. I feel like I have personally a, a very structured approach to how to reason through all of these cases. And hopefully our listeners agree. So I think we'll end it here, as we said. Um, and then I'm looking forward to the follow-up of this episode where we talk about some more nuances of this discussion. So until next time, guys, we'll see you all later. See you later. Peace. Peace.